At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, May 18th, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date, our weekly recap of science news. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Hey, guess what we're not going to talk about? Uh, I don't know. What are we not going to talk about? This? Yanni and Laurel. Oh, it's thank done. goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> Moving it's over. on. It's a mover. <laughs> but I do want to talk about senses. Okay. You released that awesome video this week, which is hopefully a first in a series of, of videos on... Um, and you basically talked about how we don't have five senses. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a new series we're developing called Brain Dive. And uh, there's some, there's there's two more that we finished, and then there's a whole bunch more in the works. Okay, so let's take it even farther. You said we have more than five senses, and there's so many that we take for granted. Well, there was a new study out this week that was led by Professor Satoshi Shiori from the Research Institute of Electrical Communication at Tohoku University. Say that two times fast. He set up basically a series of monitors surrounding an individual. So imagine almost like a hexagonal shape of monitors surrounding you. And you'd play like letters on those monitors. There'd be some sort of distractions on some of them. And basically you'd have to find the letter that was a target. And oftentimes that letter would be behind you. You'd have to turn around. You have to find it. And so the idea behind this is as people did it over and over again, and they would change up sort of the spatial dynamics and positions of some of those monitors, they were able to find that letter quicker and quicker, even though they had no knowledge of the pattern, which kind of doesn't make sense on some level. They should be able to do it at roughly the same speed. Well, but really, is this like a motor problem or a perceptual problem? It, right? See, it's a perception thing. So basically what the, the study essentially says is that these people were establishing maps of the spatial area, even in behind their head. And so they were able to look behind their head. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that's a not bit really, of stretch, not really. I, I mean, I yeah, I suspect what's happening probably is that they're starting to get used to where uh, when they turn around they should be looking, right? Like a exactly. like a ballet ballet ballerina spotting, right? So every time he or she turns around, you know, they know exactly where they're going to look. And so, you know, at first you're kind of like, where's the monitor? Oh, oh, now I know where the monitor is. And once you know where the monitor is, that like diminishes the amount of space that you need to search by quite a bit. I, I like uh, a term that came out of this was a, a sphere of sensitivity formed around these people. And that's why they're able to find it so much faster. But I do like the idea that really what they're able to leverage is all of their senses, including the ones that we don't acknowledge, to form this 3D construction 
of the space around them. And that's why they're able to do it faster. And and humans are creatures of pattern. So And this is actually has a really practical application, which is finding your blind spot when you're driving. Mm -hmm. Right. So once you're used to your car, you can get find that blind spot much more quickly. But if you're in a new car, then it's you know, it can be a lot more difficult to figure out where that is. So cool. Well, um, for anyone who's covering memory, there was a lot of great headlines <laughs> this week. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about, of course, uh, this memory because I, you know, it did memory was, was my beat uh, as a graduate student and, uh, you know, as a researcher. So I wanted to talk about this study that's getting so much news. Basically what people like there are there are uh, headlines like this one, memory transferred between snails, challenging standard theory of how the brain remembers. That's from Scientific American. So like a pretty good good source. So David Glansman, who's a neuroscientist at UCLA, my alma mater, I will admit, uh, has uh, reported some research from his lab in which they took uh, RNA, essentially, from one snail and put it into another snail and essentially transferred sensitivity to touch to the other snail. So let me unpack this for a minute. So, Well, let's first say that the snails they don't think escargot. These are more like sea snails. They're like slugs. Yeah. Like if you've ever seen Eric Kandel wearing this like one particular tie, the tie is based on this type of snail, this this sea slug, right? Which is the size of your hand, essentially. And and I mentioned Eric Kandel because he won the Nobel Prize for showing that there are traces of memory in the synapse, which this study, David Glantzman claims, counters that argument and suggests, no, 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 the memory is in the RNA, it's in the nucleus, which is a, a really pretty radical shift and a radical view. So let me just tell you about California aplesica, uh, no, aplesia, aplesia californica, my, my apologies, that's the, the snail. It's a big snail. And what it has is this uh, siphon withdrawal reflex. So it takes, you know, a body part and it withdraws it if it's expecting something bad to happen. So for example, if you shock the tail, it will withdraw the siphon. And if you shock the tail once, then the next time, even if you just touch it gently, it will still show withdrawal. That's called sensitization. So imagine what it's like if you are in an environment in which something bad has happened to you, or it's like somewhat scary. Like you're walking in the forest and you hear uh, some kind of you know branch fall. Well, if it's late at night and it's dark, you're going to jump more. You're going to startle more. Uh, that's sensitization. If it's the middle of the day and you know that you've got you know your dog behind you, you're going to startle less. And so that's a type of memory that the fact that you are sensitized. So we study this, this memory system in this uh, aplesia because the neurons are really big and you can see them and you can manipulate them. So in this particular study, they took RNA from these sensitized snails and they put them into non, you know, neutral snails. And those snails also showed the sensitization. So they withdrew their, 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 they showed their withdrawal reflex, you know, more strongly than a, a control snail. And so Glansman's conclusion is that they were successfully able to transfer memory. That's not exactly my interpretation of it. I also read this and but what what is your interpretation? Yeah. So, you know, we actually have some really nice uh, uh, research showing that people whose grandparents were in the Holocaust, specifically grandmothers, also show different epigenetic characteristics. In fact, they seem to be more sensitive to, you know, trauma and other kinds of, you know, emotional situations. 
I think that's actually a really good analogy for what's happening here. What you're doing is you're you're essentially giving a signal to the snail that the world outside is scary and that there are bad things happening and it should, you know, react cautiously. Um, which I which I think is what what's happening. That's my interpretation of this. That you're essentially you're essentially creating an environment in the snail that is leading it to react to what is previously a neutral stimulus in a stronger way because it thinks that the you know things are stressful. And somehow when that RNA was transferred those epigenetic signals, they could be a, a host of different things, might have gotten transferred along with it. I, I was sort of taking a very similar interpretation. I think the more involved interpretation that I think Glantzman's trying to say is maybe the RNA is encoding like a specific protein that is actually changing the synapse in some way. Um, yeah. Uh, there's no evidence for that. That's sort of an inference at this point. And so that would be a massive finding if true. It is. And he's also pointing to research showing that like, hey, you can stop, uh, you know, synapses from changing and still have memory formation um, or you can destroy synapses and still retain a memory. So the memory can't be in the synapse. And I, I agree with that. I mean, I think these are both extreme views. The memory is not in the synapse. The memory is not in the nucleus. <laughs> the memory is in, you know, the wiring pattern and all the different complicated aspects of the nervous system. Uh, you know, it's not just in one particular place, much as we'd like it to be that simple. Um, so while I think it's a cool experiment, while I think that it might help people, for example, with PTSD or anxiety disorders, the idea that it's going to restore memory in patients with Alzheimer's disease, I think, is completely uh, you know, misguided because the kind of memory that we lose when we have Alzheimer's disease is the kind of memory that you know is really specific. It's not just like the world is a bad place. It's like you are my husband or you are my daughter, you know, which is much more specific. And if they manage to transfer that kind of memory, whoa, sign me up. Well, I think the the wrong interpretation that we can both agree on is that the RNA has some specific role in the memory formation, that it contained the memory in some way, shape or form, which I've seen a couple outlets actually mention. And I was like, that's not what this study says at all. But what I think is sort of important to also note is like this snail has a neuron network of like 20,000 neurons in total. So it, it is non-trivial to extrapolate to a human neuronal network even if the claims that Glantzman is making turns out to be true. Yeah, and we have 86 billion neurons. Yes, yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a big difference. But I, I will say, in defense of those science journalists who are saying that, there are some things that David Glantzman has been quoted as saying, as I think, are, you know, are, are, are equally, are, are sort of f putting putting some uh, fuel on that fire, because he is claiming uh, that, that it is in the nucleus. But he also uh, acknowledges that he's a bit of a fringe outlier in that view. <laughs> Way back in episode 96, I interviewed David Kasseret, who's been on the show a couple times. And, and when I talked to him, we talked about medical marijuana and what science we actually know about it. And this was now a couple years ago. And basically, the, the spoiler alert, the outcome of that show is we don't know much because marijuana is still classified on the federal level here in the US as a schedule one drug, meaning that it has no medical value. And that means there's heavy duty restrictions on it being used in scientific research. You can still do it, it's just a lot harder to do research on it. Well, there has been a big shift in those last couple of years, both because states have been either legalizing the use of medical marijuana or at least decriminalizing it. And there's been sort of some restrictions lifted on the ability to do research on medical marijuana. And there are a couple of studies I want to highlight, one that came out just this week. A team at NYU published data from a trial using cannabidiol, or it's called CBD uh, for short, to treat patients with something called Lennox-Gestalt syndrome, which is 
a form of drug-resistant epilepsy that usually comes on in children aged two to six. It usually has impacts of lifelong uh, learning disabilities just because of the severity and the sheer number of seizures that happen. These, these people tend to have a loss of motor control, and you can expect they have a shorter lifespan as uh, due to this as well. Well, because it's drug resistant, there isn't much we can do for them. And so even though the uh, people with the syndrome only account for about 4% of the total patient population that have epilepsy, it's still one of those areas that like, if we could find something to help them, it would have a big difference to their quality of life. Well, this trial gave them a, a, a pharmaceutical that was essentially CBD in a very high dose, uh, 20 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. That's a ton of CBD, by the way, um, across 225 patients at 30 different medical centers. They saw a drop of seizure rate of 42%. That means like the median in this case was about 85 seizures over the control period. That is a ton of seizures, but a drop of 40% is massive. Uh, and anecdotally, um, one of the researchers, after they did this double blind control uh, trial, they actually dropped the blinding once the trial is over. And one of the uh, study administrators said like, you know, now that the blind is dropped, the patients had the opportunity to continue the treatment. And he was able to actually talk to the patients and see that, you know, some had modest uh, effect. Some, the seizures just went away. They're just totally gone. This is like pretty big deal. So there's one natural question. How did this work? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's obviously some chemistry involved. We do have receptors uh, for cannabinoids in our, you know, uh, in our brains. Uh, and it's possible that they are somehow related to seizure activity uh, in this subset of patients. Now, I should I should say, you know, just because you have epilepsy, that doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Right. And we do have pretty good pharmacological treatments for seizures and seizures are damaging. So, it, you know, it's not something that I think that people should necessarily just try out <laughs> um, if if it's not indicated for them. Um, for sure. And there is some research indicating that CBD has some anti-convulsant properties associated to it. But it's important to say, when I say like they took CBD, that's like a host of compounds that fall within that category. So there's like literally within, if we, if we went down to the dispensary around the corner uh, and took the CBD off the shelf and analyzed it, there'd be a hundred different 100 plus different compounds that meet that criteria. And so we don't really know which one is doing what. Um, we have indications that it's probably regulating some of the sodium and calcium ion channels, which leads to more stable electrical signals, which we can sort of see as a, a, a strengthening of, um, of resiliency against the seizure actually taking shape. But it gets weirder than that because CBDs have, because they're the host of compounds, and this is a patient trial, they didn't restrict their use of other anti-convulsive drugs in it. So there's one called Clobazam, uh, which when taken, uh, when you're on Clobazam and you're taking CBDs, somehow CBDs uh, raise the level of Clobazam in your bloodstream at the same time. So we don't know what exactly is happening here because there's such a myriad of effects at this point. But this points to some really functionally interesting data saying, hey, we got to study this more. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, people have been known about the relationship between uh, CBD and epilepsy for a long time. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's true. It's just always been fringe and it hasn't really been studied. And I think that this, it is really important to do this work because, as you say, maybe CBD is just the vehicle. And maybe, the, or maybe there's a compound in CBD that we can use because, you know, it has widespread effects too. You don't want to necessarily you know, have all the the the, the effects that, that, you, that aren't necessary. I think from a patient perspective, especially one in this case, which is sort of a rare disease situation, who cares why it works? Yeah, I mean, if it were, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, to, from the patient's perspective, you know, from the perspective of science, we want to be able to help even more patients. And so if we can figure out why it works in this small subset, then maybe we can apply it to others. I think from my perspective, as somebody, I, you know, I'm not personally affected um, by this. I think the one thing I, I look at is CBDs, if we can tease away marijuana and actually, uh, you know, create a subset, why are CBDs part of S Schedule 1 at all anymore? Um, because they don't carry the compounds that get you high. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's my understanding that if you take CBD, you actually don't feel mm -hmm. high, right? So uh, I, I think this should be the beginning. I mean, it's already been in the works of why don't we remove it from Schedule 1 so that research can accelerate. This is a pretty gold standard study. It was double blind. It came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, I look forward to seeing more about, uh, about this kind of work, whether it's for seizures or for anything related to even inflammation. Well, you heard it here at Up to Date. Join us on Monday for our full episode where I'll be interviewing Dr. Alan Stern and Dr. David Grinspoon about what it's like to go to Pluto. Oh, they went to Pluto and came back? Well, not them. <laughs> but they did send something and it did send some, some stuff back. It's pretty awesome. That'll be our show for Monday. Thanks for joining us. I'm Indravis Contes. You can find me on Twitter at Indravis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geesh. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.